My name's Rob and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Rob. Um, I've been in treatment like nine times. You know, I, I definitely did not get this right away. And it's taken a lot of pain and suffering to get to where I am today. Um, and, um, you know, I'm just gonna kind of dive right in because, um, you know, my, my journey, I wanna spend a lot of time on like what happened like while I was trying to get sober because I have such a history of like doing the wrong thing. So I have a lot of light to shine on that if you're interested, so. Um, but I always like to start off saying, when I first, first came into the rooms, I saw the steps on the wall and I was 18 years old, it was court ordered. And uh, I saw step one and it said, you know, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. And like at first glance, I was like, okay, that makes sense. Like I could easily see the powerlessness part because I was completely incapable of like putting anything down. Uh, and then as a result of that, I could easily see the unmanageability, you know? Uh, just to rattle off the, some of the severe consequences I've had, I've been to two psychiatric hospitals, nine rehabs, uh, I've been to jail twice, I've been homeless, I've been arrested for DWI four times, um, I've destroyed countless relationships, um, I've been jumped, I've been stabbed, you know, I've been through the ringer, and none of that was even close for me to be like, maybe I should... Maybe should, I should try to stop, you know? Uh, so the, the materialistic stuff, the physical consequences, that, that, that didn't really slow me down in the slightest, you know? I, I was one of those um, people that started relatively young and the consequences started happening in my life relatively early. I was still a minor when I was like started to get arrested and stuff like that. So the consequences were ever present in my life and so it was relatively normal, you know, like when I would total a car and end up in jail, you know, it wasn't like, oh my God, I need help. I need to stop drinking. It was just like, that was crazy. You know, it's just another Tuesday. Um, so anyway, that, that unmanageability, I could see that unmanageability as a, as a direct result of my drinking and my drugging. Um, but over time, as I did some work in AA, I started to see it a little bit differently. Um, and what, what it appears to me today is my, uh, my life is unmanageable. Therefore, I am powerless over alcohol, right? My life has always been unmanageable. And I can track that back to when I was a little kid uh, before I ever took the first drink, setting the whole crazy cycle in motion, you know? Um, and when I say my life was unmanageable, what I really mean by that is like my emotional state was completely unmanageable. I could not control my emotions. I was, I was completely a slave to them. So if I was having a bad day, everybody was going to know about it. You know, from a young age, I was going to have a temper tantrum. I was going to get in trouble. I was constantly being singled out by authority figures in my life from, from a very young age, which definitely didn't help for my, uh, you know, criminal record down the line. But, um, and I also, I also mean my thinking was unmanageable. You know, my, my thoughts had complete power over me. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't separate the emotional reaction to these thoughts and, and it was uh, very rarely would I have that uh, second thought. You know, it was just like, here's the irrational thought, here's the irrational action. And then I don't think about anything else until in hindsight and I'm like, you know, sitting in a jail cell or, you know, court ordered rehab or something like that. And then I'm like, oh wow, I probably shouldn't have done that. Um, so anyway, 
I started, um, I started drinking and drugging probably around 15, 14, 15 years old. And like I said, it progressed very quickly. I did a, uh, a lot of drugs. I've overdosed a lot of times. That's another consequence I have, I've had. Um, but what really broke me in the long run, like when I first asked for help, um, was the crushing weight of my loneliness. You know, I don't, I don't know if anybody can relate to this, but I remember saying things to myself like, I'm only hurting myself, I'm not hurting anybody else. If they would just leave me alone and let me do what I wanna do, everything would be fine, right? And now today I can, I can see like that's not true. If I'm hurting myself, I'm hurting other people. But it goes way beyond that. I was hurting other people too. I just didn't wanna think about it, you know? But um, with, with, um, with that realization, I, um, oh boy, where am I going with this? <laughs> um, yeah, so the loneliness, yep. That was what really broke me. And so the fateful day came where they finally did leave me alone and let me do what I wanted to do. And it was the worst thing that I had ever experienced. Um, at the end of my, my, at the end of that run, you know, there was nobody left in my life that want, that wanted anything to really do with me. It was just like that, uh, that dog eat dog kind of crew, you know, um, the, the people that cared about me in the beginning kind of just cut me out of their life because the, the didn't want to see me kill myself. And then like the, my, my parents and like the close family members, the, the, the ones that wouldn't give up on me, I cut them out of my life um, because they were getting in my way of the next one. And so that can't happen. I, that, that takes precedence over everything else. And so you know, I kind of ended up all alone. And, and so I finally cracked under the pressure of it all and I asked for help for the first time. I was like 25 years old at the time. And uh, I had tried to call this, um, this treatment center that was like at 30 minutes from where I lived. I'm from New Jersey originally. And um, I had no idea how rehab worked. So I literally like Googled this rehab and like called that place. And they're like, no, you gotta go to admissions. And next thing you know, I, they convinced me to get on a plane and come to Florida. And, um, I ended up on the, the west coast of Florida and then came here after I got out. And th so that period of time, like, I kind of just thought to be sober was to be miserable, you know, because every time I attempted to get sober, I, was ju I just got so miserable that I was just like, this isn't worth it and would always go back to the drinking and the drugging. Um, but something interesting happened. When I was at that first treatment center, I was very ill, you know, coming off of a lot of stuff. Um, and of course I was miserable for like the first three weeks, but then I started to like physically feel a little bit better. And I was like hanging out at the smoke pit and um, I was belly laughing. I was just like bullshitting with some of the other, my peers, you know, and like I was laughing so hard. I don't, I can't tell you what we were talking about, but it, it, I had this like weird moment where I, I like stopped and I looked around and I realized like, oh my God, I'm in rehab right now. I was having so much fun that I forgot where I was for a minute. And uh, that really kind of hit me hard because it like opened my eyes to like, wow, maybe, maybe you can have fun even if you're sober. And that was like news to me at the time because I had never even considered the thought possible. Um, so I got convinced from uh, like, you know, the, the staff at the rehab and also some of my peers to like, 
stick with treatment and go to the next level of care. So I ended up in West Palm and you know, I went into a halfway house and did an IOP program and stuff. But I, I didn't really understand how this all works, you know? And, and so my interest had nothing to do with recovery. And I was like 100% about like, hey, I'm gonna go to the beach and chase girls around because that's fun. And, um, and that's exactly what I did. That was my focus. And, um, you know, I had fun for a little bit and I was in a new area with new people and I had drug tests hanging over my head and stuff. So it kept me sober for a few months, you know? Um, but eventually the novelty of it all wears off, you know, it stops feeling like a big vacation and it starts to feel like life again, you know? And before you know it, I started to have that feeling again. And, uh, and then I was off to the races and down here now. And, uh, you know, that there was a string of overdoses and it just got really bad until eventually I ended up in a detox down in Fort Lauderdale. I met a girl in the detox and, uh, you know, started hooking up with her in, in the detox and then we get out and I pack my bags, sneak out of a halfway house and next thing you know, we're running across the country together. Now, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. And I thought it was a great idea at the time. And, and something you need to understand is I had just gotten out of treatment. So I hadn't even relapsed yet. I was sober when I made this decision, you know? And it just kind of goes to show, at least me, that I am perfectly capable of ruining my life completely sober, right? Because my thinking is really messed up. And unless I wanna use the program the way it's supposed to be to take a hard look at that thinking, I'm just gonna keep repeating the same stuff over and over again. But I wasn't ready yet, but I ran away with this girl. I ended up in Colorado and I almost died. Like it was really bad. She bailed on me out there. I was stuck for a while. I didn't know anybody. And I was back on drugs. It was, you know, I was like this close to being stuck out there permanently homeless, you know, and um, I managed to get in touch with somebody I had met down here who was like, a, he had halfway houses and he was a part owner of an IOP and stuff. And he told me, listen, if, if you can get back here to Florida, you know, I have a bed waiting for you and I'll even give you a job. And I was like, okay. It took me a little bit to get, get stuff together and make it back here. And I didn't have insurance. I didn't have a way to get any kind of detox meds. So I just copped as much drugs as I, I could possibly get my hands on. And I, she left her car behind. She flew back. I didn't even have a license, but I'm driving across country without a license, you know, uh, with the freaking uh, breathalyzer connected to the ignition. So like every hour or so on the interstate, I got a freaking blow. It's a pain in the ass. Um, but uh, I detoxed cold turkey in that car on my way back to Florida on the interstate. Like I would pull over in the rest areas and just sweat it out and I'll spare you the more gruesome details, but you could imagine how horrible it was. Um, so I make it back to Florida and I'm pretty broken at this point, but my motives are still messed up. My motive is, okay, I need to get like 90 days. That's what I wanted. I wanted 90 days. I didn't want like anything else. I was just like, I just want to get like 90 days to get my money back up so that I can make some moves. That was kind of the logic. But I had been beaten so severely from this run that the one amazing thing that had came out of it was I was fully aware that I couldn't get 90 days. I was like, that is not fucking possible. So. I was like, maybe if I do take some of the suggestions that they've been telling me for a long time now, maybe I can get 90 days, you know, and then I'll be out, you know. So I, I ended up asking somebody to sponsor me. I got to the halfway house, by the way, with like three days off of 
of heroin and like one day off of alcohol, like just enough to be able to pass a drug test to get my foot in the door. So I was still kind of sick, you know, but I asked the sponsor uh, to sponsor me at like two days sober and we started getting into the work and I ended up staying sober for two years. So there's like two significant things that happened in that two years. And one was I had what I like to call my step two moment, right? And I had been doing the step work, you know, and I, I think I had just done a third step, but I did, I don't know if I had fully absorbed it or anything, but I was going through the motions at least. And then uh, one day I, I come home and I'm at the halfway house that I'm living at and nobody's home. And there's like 16 guys that live in this house and I'm home alone. Weird that it even happened, you know? And um, I'm sitting there alone and I just got to thinking, you know, it was not a good place to be. And so, I, I think my way into this dark hole and I feel that weight on my chest pressing down on me like I'm suffocating and the only thing that I can think of that'll make me feel better is, is drugs and alcohol, you know? And, and uh, it's like the obsession, the mental obsession they talk about. It blots everything out. You get the tunnel vision and that's the only, you know, I like to compare it to like, you know, it's like you're suffocating and, and that, that breath of fresh air that you so desperately need is in the bottom of the bottle or in the bottom of the bag, you know? And so you, you, you pursue that like you're, like, a, like you're dying, you know, desperate. And um, in the heat of that moment, I remember thinking to myself, because I had actually cracked open a big book for once in my life and read a little bit, you know, so I kind of knew, <laughs> not that I knew anything, but I, I at least had this stuff rattling around in my head. And I remember thinking to myself while I was feeling like that, I go, see, this is it right here. This feeling that I'm experiencing right now, this is why this shit doesn't work for me. If anybody else felt the way that I feel right now, this wouldn't work for them either. And then I just like, something just slipped in my mind. It just dawned on me and I had this epiphany, right? It, the step two says we. We came to believe that a power greater than us could restore us to sanity. And I realized in that moment, oh my God, this feeling that I'm experiencing right now is what the book is actually talking about. I never put it, I never made the connection, you know? I'm like, this isn't what makes me unique. This isn't what makes me, you know, different from everybody else where this won't work. This is what makes me an alcoholic. This is what makes me one of them. And it was just like, boom, you know, it was kind of like the floodgates opened up a little bit. And as a result of that, that epiphany, the obsession disappeared. And now, that, that was uncharted territory for me because when I got to that mind state, I, uh, it was already past the point of no return, like I was gonna get high. So the fact that it, it, I got past it was like a miracle in my mind. And then, so I had one other significant moment. I was writing a fourth step and I, it was long, it was like 30 pages long and I'm like flipping back through because I was an angry, an angry guy, I guess. I had a lot of names that I, people I was angry with. And, uh, I get to the front, the first page of the notebook where I started the fourth step, and on the back side of the front cover was the name Brian Moore written down. I had no idea that I had this guy's notebook, but he was my roommate in treatment, and um, he he had a really bad attitude. You know, we all knew he was going to get high when he left, and he did. Um, and within, I want to say, two months, his wife found him dead on the side of the road. So he had overdosed in a car, and whoever he was with just kind of kicked him out on the side of the road and left. Guy had kids and everything. And um, it hit me hard. The fact that I was writing my fourth step in his notebook, you know? And I realized I was using his notebook to stay sober that day. And this is 
kind of like uh, in Bill's story, he has the white light experience, right? This is kind of like the white light experience in my life. I realized for the first time that although I was making an effort to be sober, it was purely for selfish reasons, right? I wanted to have a better life. I was tired of being miserable. I wanted to be happy. I didn't want to die. Me, 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 I, I, I. And for the first time, I realized that this is so much bigger than me. Because maybe, just maybe, if I could stay sober, a result of that could be maybe I could help somebody else get sober and maybe that wife doesn't have to find her husband dead on the side of the road. Maybe two children don't have to grow up without a father. You know, and maybe that person who gets sober, they can help, and it just perpetuates itself. And so it was just, you know, I, the, a new world snapped into view, right? I saw the world in its beauty and its perfection for a fleeting moment, but it's fleeting, right? And so, you know, eventually things go back. I, I mean, I was thriving on that energy for a while, but eventually things go back to normal and stuff starts to, you know, get on your nerves again, next thing you know you want to choke your boss and you don't get paid enough and she's, she's lying, cheating, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I had to continue down the path. And, and I did and I started sponsoring people and, I, and life got great. I moved back home to New Jersey. I got plugged into AA up there. I picked up a couple of sponsees. I did not get a sponsor, right? Because I had a, what they call a spiritual ego. I thought I knew better. I thought that my connection with God was so good that, you know, I didn't need somebody else to guide me. And I made some terrible decisions that were like ticking time bombs in my life. And, and about eight months later, it blew up, you know, and I picked up a drink. I was about, two, it was like, I want to say it was like a one day before my two-year anniversary, I decided to have a drink. And, um, you know, I had seen a couple people that I had gotten sober with in the halfway get a couple years sober and then go out and start drinking because they were there for drugs, you know? And like on social media, it looked all shiny and fancy, like they were living a good life and it wasn't screwing them up. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I could do that, you know, one day. Um, and I tried that experiment and that experiment cost me another 14 months of my life, uh, the worst 14 months of my life. In that time period, I did more damage collectively in that 14-month period than I had done in my previous like decade of using. Um, and at the end of that run, my best friend, who I used to use with when we were younger, and then we had both gotten sober at one point. He was only, he was just just under a year. I think he had a little over nine months, and I had I had relapsed and I was running, and he wanted me to be sober more than I wanted to be sober. You know, he would he would bring me to treatment centers, pick me up from treatment centers, set up intakes at IOP for me. Like, this is, this is just a friend, you know? It's not like my mom, you know? And, and so he was really going the extra mile. And um, he, he was, and he was going through a, a tough period himself. He, he was going through a divorce, a custody battle, all really stressful things, and COVID hit, and everything shut down. And, uh, the, the, and especially in New Jersey, I mean, it was, it was down and it was for a long, long time. And, um, you know, once the meetings were gone, a lot of people that were solid, a lot of people that had some time started to go back out. And he started to want to go back out. And he would ask me, come on, get, give me some, give me some, give me some. And I said, no, no, no. And then he called me one day when I was really desperate, fiending. I didn't have money. I didn't have drugs. I was going to get sick. And he said, if you give me some, I'll get you, I'll get you high. And, and so I did what I had to do, and sure enough, I got him high before he got me sober. 
And as a result of that, he died two weeks later. You know? And so at this point, I had conceded to my innermost self that I would be better off dead. Um, I was no longer drinking and drugging for oblivion. I was drinking and drugging to die. I was resigned to a slow death by alcohol and drugs, and I thought I deserved every second of it. And um, I had given up on life. And it's, it's crazy because, you know, even though I gave up, like, just a twist of fate, you know, like somebody who I had met down here, like reached out to me out of the blue, didn't even know I, like I had been getting high for 14 months. He had no idea I relapsed. He thought I was, you know, living my best life. And, you know, as soon as he hears the state that I'm in, he's just like, get to Florida, get a plane ticket. I'll scholarship you. Like it's all taken care of. And I was like, all right, I was able to get into a detox and then I flew back down here and he scholarship me through. I tried calling my old sponsor who brought me through the steps the first time when I was down here. We met up and he pawned me off on his best friend. He had just had a baby, so you know the time for my needy ass. Um, but I get down here and I, I go through the steps again. And I, I don't have that white light experience this time, but a lot of amazing stuff started to happen. Um, and I talked about my friend who died with my sponsor during my fifth step. And he said to me, he was like, you know, one day you're gonna, you're gonna share your story and his story is a part of yours now. And maybe you can help somebody with his story too, you know? And that, that helped kind of diminish some of that like survivor's guilt, you know? And, um, you know, I, I, so I go through the steps and I get down to, um, you know, steps eight and nine. And like his family is like on there and you know I'm like I'm thinking to myself like there's no way that I could ever how how could I ever like talk to his family and 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 like make an amends for something like that I feel like it just would it wouldn't do any justice you know and then it was like two Thanksgivings ago I think right uh, two Thanksgivings ago um, my phone rings and it's his sister and so I freeze, you know, I'm like, oh shit, what the fuck is this about, you know? And I answer the phone and she, she's, you know, basically says like, hey, I really need you to answer some questions. And I didn't know what to say or what to do. And so I just, the principles of the, the steps just guided me in this moment. And I was just like, I have to be honest. That's the only thing I, what other move do I have here? You know, feed her a line of bullshit? Like that's, that's even more messed up, you know? And so I just was honest with her, told her everything that I knew, and the craziest thing happened. They had been obsessing over this, you know, and they had done a lot of investigating, and they had pieced together this whole puzzle, and they basically had this story of like what had happened and what brought him out and how he died and everything, but there was just this one missing piece of the puzzle that, that just they could not find, that, you know, they just couldn't put it to rest, and I had been selfishly holding on to that piece of the puzzle the whole time, just out of fear, you know? And when I gave them the truth, they finally had that missing piece of the puzzle. They finally understood how everything had happened and they were able to have some closure. And today, his sister still calls me, checks in on me, making sure I'm still sober, making sure I'm still doing, doing the right thing. She's like one of my, she's one of my biggest uh, supporters, you know? 
So it's like, it's pretty amazing, you know, and that's by no, you know, I had nothing to do with that. Like I, I just like kind of reacted the right way a little bit, but like, to me, that's a higher power working in my life. Like he, you know, I would have never had the courage, I don't think, to pick up the phone and, and make that call or like go and visit them, you know? Um, and so I stayed sober for, I wanna say about a year and a half. And um, eventually I had another slip. I, um, like I said, the, the, the mind state that we get as a result of working these, these steps is, is fleeting and unless you have maintenance you will lose that mind state and slowly but surely revert back into the old mind state you know and so you know after after making a lot of progress you know like finally getting out of halfway and getting my own place for like you know getting some utility bills in my name for god's sake you know getting a you know a line of credit things just like normal like 30 year old men have you know i finally started making all this progress you know and it was great, but it was scary. It scared the shit out of me. You know, like having nothing is, is my comfort zone, right? Because if I fuck up and burn my life down, then I don't really have much to lose. And then all of a sudden, I, get, I stay sober for a while and I start building this life and it gets better and better and better. Now all of a sudden I've got all this stuff to lose and it's just like financial insecurity like takes over and I just, I'm so fearful that I'm gonna screw everything up and lose it. And, and very quickly, if, I, if I'm not doing the maintenance, if I'm not living in steps 10, 11, and 12, right? Very quickly, the presence of a higher power is blotted out and I can no longer see or feel God working in my life. And when that happens, I take the reins back and I'm like, all right, how can I fix this? You know what I mean? Like I'm afraid that uh, I might not be able to uh, pay my rent. So let me work um, 80 hours a week. You know, like that's how I try to fix things. Like I try to take control rather than just having faith and being like, you know what, God will provide for me. Everything will work out, which it always does. It always does. You know, I try to take control and, and, um, you know, so anyway, one thing I've been thinking about is, you know, it's easy to talk about what it was like and what happened, but sometimes I find it very hard to, to put into words what it's like now, right? And so I've been kind of putting some conscious effort into to thinking about this. And, you know, it's not like it's not like, oh, I went through the steps and then I lived happily ever after. You know, that's not real. Um, life still shows up and sometimes bad stuff happens and, and we're, we, we, we're in pain. You know, sometimes we suffer. And, you know, I used to think that I could use AA as a way to a avoid suffering. You know, like I would never have to feel pain again. I was basically trying to use 12 steps in AA like I was using alcohol and drugs. And that, that doesn't really work. You can try, but it, you'll burn yourself out and end up doing more damage in the long run. So what I really have found is my life has purpose today. My life has taken on a new meaning and that meaning is so powerful that it makes all the attendant suffering of life worth it and and that's and that's why i'm sober today because it's worth it you know my life is worth it i'm worth it and it took me almost 15 years to get to that place you know and and i i've come so close to dying and i've suffered so much to finally realize that you know and the last thing i'll say is this when i first came around i used to see people 
uh, speaking at meetings, chairing meetings, and doing all this service work. And I remember like looking at them from the back of the room and being like, those guys really seem like they're happy. You know, I wish I could be like that. But the, the mind state was, I, I, I wish I could be like that, but I definitely can't. I could never do that. I couldn't be a sponsor. I couldn't speak at a meeting. That's, I'm not qualified to do that. And one of the best things I learned since in my recovery journey is God doesn't call upon the qualified. He qualifies the called. And so if you're sitting here and you're alive and you're not dead, like countless alcoholics and addicts that never make it into these rooms, I can tell you right now you're being called, right? And, and part of that qualification is the suffering, right? I've heard people say the hardest step is the doorstep. Nothing the 12 steps will ask you to do is anywhere near as hard as what you had to suffer and endure to make it to a point where you were finally willing to come into a place like this, you know? And now the other part of that qualifications is the 12 steps. And so it's up to you guys, you know, to just get, get, it, get with the sponsor and get through the steps and then, and then turn around and help the next sorry, sorry person that comes walking through the door. Um, it worked for me. And uh, I imagine that it would work for any of you. So with that, thanks for letting me share.